government did launch against us. In fact, in my tenure, it launched against us twice, but we managed to beat off both of those threats to us. Hi, welcome to The Ascent, Tenzing's podcast series about tech CEOs and entrepreneurs. I'm Guy Gillen, one of the co-founders and managing partners at Tenzing. We're a private equity firm and we're passionate about the human stories in business. In this series, I'm getting under the skin of some of the UK's and the tech world's most interesting founders, entrepreneurs and CEOs. Not only are they super interesting people with incredible stories, but they can share with us heaps of useful tips and advice to help us in our own day-to-day lives. This time, I'm talking to Louise Rogers, prolific edtech and digital media pioneer, master brand builder, fearless culture changer and serial investor. She's built up a reputation for not just wrangling, but taming and transforming unwieldy business beasts. She's always taking on bold, audacious challenges, stepping outside of her comfort zone and doing it in such a nice way. Luckily for us, Louise became part of the Tenzing family in 2016 when she joined our entrepreneurs panel. Enjoy. Louise, what a pleasure it is to have you on our podcast. Perhaps best known for taking Times Educational Supplement, I'm sure we'll call it Tez all day, getting your hands on it and turning it into a billion dollar tech platform. Now in the process of transforming new scientists, hopefully into another world leading digital brand, founding partner of Aussie, a media platform for change generation. You're a serial investor and innovator, but you don't like being described as an entrepreneur. That's right. Why is that? <laughs> Why is that? I think it's about my own perception of that word. I always think entrepreneurs are go-it-alone people who sit there with a vision and create something from scratch. And in my mind, that's what it looks like. And I definitely don't think that describes what I do at all. So I feel a bit of a fraud if there's that title around, I suppose. Yeah, it's interesting. So I kind of think entrepreneurs are people that go against the odds when everyone sort of says to them, you're slightly crazy, but you don't necessarily need to found the business in order to do that. And I think some of the stuff you've done is slightly crazy and against all odds as well. So I think of you as an entrepreneur, if that's helpful. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me about when you first kind of took the big jump into... I get you'd call it being an operator and I guess I'd call it on the entrepreneurial journey. I think the first big jump in my career, well, probably it was moving from being an architectural journalist to moving into the business side. And I know even now that's quite an unusual move. For me, I was at a particular stage actually in the history of media in that the internet was really starting to come alive and I could look at what was happening online and start to really question around whether my chosen and much loved profession how it would alter and how it would change going forward so you know I'd look at something like the early days of something like CNET where you'd get hundreds in those days hundreds of people commenting about a particular camera or piece of equipment and you'd look at that and think There's more knowledge and insight and interesting things to be said by those 100,000 people 
than one journalist can ever say. So I sort of decided to move away from journalism at that point. I think it was a good move in hindsight. I mean, I'm still a really huge supporter of journalism and media now. But at the time, there was definitely a move into, well, what does that new sort of community world look like? So I sort of made the leap and went into business. I didn't really enjoy it to start with at all. And I definitely didn't know what I was doing. But that was my first big leap. And of course, I've sort of never looked back. I absolutely love it now. So taking your career, which has ended up working quite extensively in private equity and definitely useful for all entrepreneurs listening, in terms of career milestones, your first big move, I think, was to California, wasn't it? It was. And after kind of many years working in architectural journalism, what was it about the call from Silicon Valley? (laughs) How did the Silicon Valley persuade you to leave wet London being a journalist? It was, I was working for a corporate CMP Mm. and the then chief executive, Bernard Gray, had this job going, which was to go and look after this crazy group out in just below San Francisco, which was... This sounds much more interesting than it was, but men's interest magazines, which happened to be music (laughs) magazines. And so the guitar player was the big title there, and there was bass player and EQ and gig magazines. So there was sort of a stable of four pretty well-established but quite small media businesses that were, were not doing very well. And it just sounded like the most exciting thing. I mean, to be able to go and work in Silicon Valley in an industry that I didn't know I definitely had never run a group on my own before, but that was my big break. And I made such an effort on the interview. I did a big PowerPoint presentation. I did a huge amount of research, which, you know, when I look back now and see what private equities do, companies do in terms of research was sort of the beginning of me being really interested in looking at data and what you should be doing and how you decide a strategy. So I went all out and lucky for me, I got the job and I remember Bernard saying to me, right, well, can you move out there in two weeks, which was pretty difficult to do, but it was really exciting. Was that a risk, like personally and professionally? or I didn't think of it like that. I mean, I was surprised that not more people went for the job. I remember that thinking it was the best job in the entire world, which it turned out to be the best job in the entire world, actually. But I suppose there were lots of people who could have gone for the job and maybe people are more worried about moving family and children and all the rest of it across the world. I wasn't worried about it at all. My children were very small. They were easily could move with me and it just seemed like a massive opportunity. And I'd never lived abroad, so I really wanted to experience living in a different country. And it was Silicon Valley and it was, you know, the most exciting thing you could imagine if you're in media. So I didn't think of it a risk at all. And well, it was really exciting because Guitar Player was an incredibly old brand and very well known, really very successful magazine in terms of numbers sold but the business model didn't really work at all and it had lost its way so there were sort of three big guitar magazines in the market and we were definitely number three and so I was able to go out there and relaunch in fact we relaunched all the magazines pretty quickly within the first I'd say six months and that involved you know really analysing where we sat compared to the competitors redesigning relaunching the editorial proposition taking the the teams with me and you know let's be honest they really didn't want to be led by a British woman who knew nothing about shred guitar so it was a bit of a battle to start with but we soon saw results so you know the business turned around incredibly quickly and as soon as you start getting that 
energy of things moving around and the teams got really excited about what was happening to both the product and our reputation and our finances and it sort of you know definitely builds momentum for more change and were you moving it from sort of old media to new media print to digital how how did that well the first job was just to make it a better print product so you know we redesigned it we put it on beta paper, we rethought the editorial proposition, we re-engineered the teams, all of those things. And then the second big job was really to start taking it online. And I, I had this fantastic opportunity to work with eBay, actually. So they were just down the road, obviously. And at the time, they really wanted to increase the amount of time that people hung out on eBay rather than just going on and buying things. So we did a big experiment. We took it to them as a proposition where we'd build a site behind the musical instrument part of eBay, um, which was called Backstage Lounge. And it would have information and content and interviews so that if you were going out looking for a Gibson guitar you could then go back into Backstage Lounge and discuss that with other people and also the editors from the magazine and it worked really well of course because for them it did keep people on the site and for us it gave us huge amounts of traffic that were coming through eBay and that was where I learned about the internet and learned about digital on a daily basis and eBay were brilliant. The team that ran the musical instruments section would give me lessons in SEO and how it all worked. And I'd go down and really learn about it from scratch. So it was an amazing opportunity for me. And so this was what, 2002? Was Silicon Valley the sort of iconic place that it is now? Does it, was it everything you imagined it would be? Yes, it was. I mean, it was. it's a funny place. I, mean, I still work in Silicon Valley quite a lot now, and I do think of it as a bit of a second home. But it's both incredible people with real vision, and it's also really crazily creative place but also it's weird and I think this about doing business in America quite a lot it is hard to do sort of move into the states but it's also a very small place you know there are a few people that seem to be really running how it works and how it develops and and it's not that hard to get into that environment and really understand it and get to know those people so it didn't feel half as scary and weird and wonderful once you're there as maybe it does from here and so when I went to music player look my friends all said how the hell did you get that job because you know I have pretty poor musical taste they would say anyway and I definitely didn't have enough to run a music group and actually if I don't know that much about music in the UK American rock and roll (laughs) music is a world unto itself So, and we used to put on big events as well. So I spent a lot of time Googling incredibly famous people that I had never heard of, just to make sure that I didn't embarrass myself completely at those events. We would, um, you know, those plastic things you have, right? Those horrible plastic things. Americans love them at events, don't they? Uh, With your name on it. And these ones didn't have names on it because they'd have things like talent written on them. But I may not know who that person is. So we we had this code where... Anyone super famous had a purple lanyard so that specifically so that I wouldn't go up to them and ask Carlos Santana what you did for a living or something like <laughs> What do you do? What are you doing here? What do you do? <laughs> so it worked pretty well, actually. I got very good at being able to ask very general questions about people trying to figure out what band they were in or, you know, whether they were a bass player or a guitar player. Although it did make me realise that... Um, 
if you want to ask somebody how they are, never ask a guitar player. Bass player, always ask them. They're the nicest people on earth. <laughs> but, yeah, if you wanted to get an earful for half an hour, you asked a guitar player how they were. So where did you take music player to and what did you decide to leave when you did? So I think I decided, I was supposed to go there for a year or so and I ended up spending nearly four, maybe three and a half, four years there. And we did, we were doing events, we were doing digital, we were taking it online more. But I did know that I'd sort of got to the end of the road and it was probably as big as I was going to get it. And then I got approached actually for the Tez job. And I hadn't ever worked for private equity. I didn't really understand what private equity did. I had, I think, which a lot of people have a sort of opinion about it or a presumption that it was all about cost cutting and it was incredibly aggressive and maybe not where I wanted to be. But I got a call around Tez and it was just going into a process and one of the private equity companies who ended up buying it. I got a call from, again, Bernard, who'd been my boss at CMP and had liked what I'd done at Music Player, who said, basically, stop sunning yourself, you know, <laughs> on the beach in California and come and do a real job. So we ended up buying the business and I moved back home in order to take up the MD role at Tez. And then it was only later that I was promoted to CEO. So, OK, so you joined as an MD. And how long was it before you went to CEO? Well, who was Bernard CEO? Who was the CEO? Bernard was the CEO. I was the MD. And, yeah, literally, we sort of walked in. The whole of the old management team all left, I think, by one person. The business unionised the day we bought it and hadn't been unionised since the days of the whopping rights. I mean, it was a, you know, it was a pretty difficult first 12 months actually mm. and what was the actual role as an MD and what did you do in the first few years then so the first thing I did we knew that the answer to the strategy for Tez was that we need to take it on that digital journey and anybody looking at that business at the time would say that one or both of two things would kill it the first would be that you know from a, Tez is it has a revenue stream which is all recruitment advertising for teachers and basically 95 percent of all teachers in the UK get their jobs through TES. So it was a big classified media business. Big newspapers run on newspaper print presses with classified advertising at the back. That's That was the model. And it was clear that that was going to go online and potentially go online for 50p. You'd lose the yield, you'd lose the market, and it would go the way of, you know, many classified markets were going at that time. So the first question was, could we take it online? Could we retain the yield and then grow the yield? And then the second big threat to the business was that the government would launch against it and would decide that the teacher recruitment market shouldn't be sitting in the hands of private equity or private individual at all, but that should be part of the government. And the government did launch against us. In fact, in my tenure, it launched against us twice, but we managed to beat off both of those threats to us. And we did manage to make the digital transformation. And how did the team handle working in private equity? Because you'd all come out of corporates and then the rest were sort of coming out of the journalist environment. So how was that private equity experience? And do you see your difference, with, you know, without being specific on people, but the difference between good and bad PE support? So there definitely, it was not a welcome 
change for the business. And it was a very big editorial team. I think at the time it was bigger than the Sunday Times as an editorial team. And, you know, our approach, our approach on digital, the questioning about the editorial direction of the business, how you were thinking about the business model was not welcomed. I mean, now, not by everybody. So we there were some true stars there who really came out and came alive as soon as you know we were able to say that look we're going to invest in the business and we want to hear what people want to say but it's fair to say that the majority of people you know didn't welcome that change and you know I had a lot of sympathy for that view really they'd been doing a fantastic job oh it's a hundred year old brand They'd been doing a fantastic job in a corporate environment. They'd been doing what they'd been asked to do. It was a cash cow. And suddenly we were questioning everything, ripping up everything. We made a big restructure, took a you know significant amount of money out of the content part of the business in order to invest in digital. I mean, it was a pretty disruptive transition at the beginning. And in terms of moving then from ND to CEO, how did that come about? And was that something you excited about or what was your thinking at the time? I was really excited. I mean, obviously, it's a massive opportunity. And by that time, we'd sold the business. So we sold the business really quickly. We sold it within 18 months of first buying it. And then it moved to Charterhouse, which is the second private equity house that owned it. I'd been working with Charterhouse for some time then, I really liked the way they thought about the business and they were incredibly supportive. So I felt I had really good support from my sponsor and it was a chance to run my own business, you know, on a pretty major scale. Um, I also was able to start building my own team and I think, you know, there's nothing better as a CEO to, or indeed as a, a any sort of executive position in a team to feel like you're able to really bring an amazing group of people together and it took a long time I mean to get the team right and get it really working right took years to be honest and I knew at the end and we you know we went through some difficult times obviously we traded through the last recession which was pretty brutal but you know the team I had and that I worked with at Tez I think the best team I could ever have worked with. Sounds like incredibly challenging, but hugely rewarding. There must have been some pretty exceptionally tough times. What really drove you to to have that hunger and ambition? Do you think? I don't. It's a really interesting question, is it? Because it's very difficult to sort of pinpoint the thing that drives you. I think I I like overcoming obstacles. So you know, I definitely feel that energizes me rather than worries me and that's not that I'm not worried I mean you know when Tez was in the middle of the recession Tez lost about 45 nearly 50 percent of its volume you know we didn't lose market share but we did lose volume and that's a devastating blow and you'll remember it was for for a long period and to be honest we were lucky because most classified businesses went down by far more than that in the last recession and the responsibility of you know, at the time it was about 250 people working there. You have huge responsibility for that. You also have responsibility for the fact that you're you're sitting with a 100-year-old brand that you want to keep going for another 100 years. So I think that I've just got much more energised about why, you know, why we were going to survive 
whatever happened and sort of huge determination around that. It's interesting, isn't it? It's like a sort of the more challenging the goal sounds like the more enthused you are by it. Yeah, and it's something about the underdog as well, isn't it? It's something about having the grit and determination just to survive whatever is going on. Were you an underdog growing up? Um, I don't know whether... I mean, look, I come from a very privileged background. I have fantastic family. We're incredibly close. I've got two sisters who I still speak to at least once a week, if not every day, most of the time. <clears throat> My father was, you know, a pretty incredible man. He was a he came from India. He was an engineer. Donald Campbell's engineer when he oh, broke wow. the land speed Bluebird. record... And he was pretty driven. I think I got my work ethic for him 100%. But um, I was definitely the one growing up that was slightly the black sheep of the family. So, you know, I remember because when I left university, it was actually in the middle of a recession and there weren't many jobs around. And I think everybody, like we all worry about our children and what they're going to do next. But my father, I remember, the only people hiring were next. And he really wanted me to go for a job in next. (laughs) I refuse. First of all, I'd done some silly degree as far as he was concerned, which was history of architecture and design. And secondly, I then wouldn't go for a job in next. So, so he, you sort of done an obscure university degree and then gone into yes. architecture within that obscure space. Yes. If you need any knowledge about dead architects, I'm your person. I know a lot. <laughs> Did you ever feel that you needed to prove to your dad that your path was the right one? I don't know about... I don't know about... I think, actually, if I'm honest, it's more that I didn't need to prove it in some respects, that I just was going to do my own thing, whatever. I think if I'd have wanted to prove to him anything, I would have gone and got for that job in next. Who knows what I'd be doing now? But you... You're drawn to hard work, though, aren't you? Yeah, definitely. You know, I um, remember a good friend of mine saying, telling me I was a bit of a binary life form, that I'm either asleep or running at 100 miles an hour. There's not much in between. I definitely fill the time. And I, and I think as you get older, you really recognise that about yourself, you know. When I was younger, I used to tell myself, well, I'm really busy and I have to work this hard. And then actually, as you get older, you realise, actually, I do it because I like doing it. Was that a choice to work that hard? Or do you think you just had to, to progress? I did have to work really hard to get from one position to the next and to think about what I, you know, how I was going to to make that transition. But I think it's actually much more about the fact that I love and I kind of need to always look for something that's a bit more difficult than last time. And I definitely really enjoy just throwing myself into something where I do not know what I'm doing. So I love changing markets because I think it takes a good three years to really understand a market at all. And so there's that sort of feeling of I really don't know enough at the moment to make proper decisions so I've got to get my head around how this market or this geography or this culture works really quickly and I I really enjoy that. But you you jump from one I mean I suppose there's obviously thematics running through it but they're quite distinct the kind of career steps that you've taken and having that 
new knowledge and new market. Is there anything that comes out of that that you've, I guess, codified despite the different markets? Is something that where you use kind of repeatedly in private equity kind of environments? Yeah, look, I think there's a few things. I mean, I'm a great believer in using data and I don't mean running businesses or thinking about strategy by numbers, but I do mean finding out what's really going on, not what you think's going on or what you'd like to be going on or what your business thinks is going on or what your IM said or what you told your sponsor or what you believed, but really just trying to dig down and say what's really happening and how do I figure that out? What are the myths around your business? What are the legends? I always think there's a set of things you tell yourself about your business or your market or your market position which are absolutely true and the crown jewels of everything you've got. And then there's a whole other set of assumptions or stories that build up around businesses that aren't actually true at all. And sort of looking into the eye of that monster and sort of having to be really honest with yourself about what's true and what isn't true, I think is one of the most interesting parts of getting to grips with a new business or a new market or a new geography. Because I remember you used to, you kind of invest very heavily in that data or analytical side, particularly around the market before you get involved in something. That seems to be a sort of very pertinent theme for you. Yeah, I mean, I, I do. But also because I think markets and assumptions change. And, and I was thinking about this the other day, actually. One of the great things about having, you know, more and more experience in different, areas and markets is that you sort of develop a shorthand for having at least an inkling or an idea about what you should do next or the questions you should ask. But there's a real danger of that in that as well, in that I always worry that if you're too experienced or you rely too much on what happened to you before or what you saw happening before, that you miss out on other knowledge or other ways of thinking about it. And, you know, one of the things I'm, I always now and I'm really lucky to be able to do this but I always sit on the board of a venture capital backed business a startup and you know that goes back to those Silicon Valley days but I think that the way those small and growing businesses act and think and feel is so different to big established businesses and those you know, those digital native entrepreneurs think so differently. And I like that because I don't want to rely on the fact that I may have seen a particular problem or tried to solve it in a set in a different way. I don't want to just rely on that shorthand. I want to be challenged by people who think about things differently. And they really do. And so it makes me think, I think, I'm hopefully harder and differently about those bigger businesses as well. For me, the big question is not what do you do on top of what you're doing now, but what do you stop doing now? What do you stop in your business because you found out something that changed your view? That strategy wrapped up, isn't it? Yeah. Particularly if you're comfortable doing them. And particularly if they were your idea. (laughs) That's the hardest, isn't it? (laughs) Saying, yeah, you know, it felt like a good idea at the time, but actually if I look at it honestly... You know, it's either run its course or it didn't work and now I have to go kill it. So you trust it. It's, you, you've never had like a bad data experience or, or 
analytical experience? Well, look, I don't think you should, as I said, I don't think you should run something by the numbers. So, you know, there is something about creativity and thinking outside of the numbers that is really exciting and often I think that's where you get your best successes. But in order to do that, you have to understand what the data is telling you first. And yeah, you know, I've had bad data where, but normally it's because you're measuring the wrong thing or you're not measuring enough. I think it's very common for a business to look at a market and miss the disruptors because you're just not looking in the right direction. Well, uh, finally, before we wrap up, I was going to ask you some quick fire questions that I've asked some of the others. So I think you quite like to read. So best book, and it can be kind of fictional or non-fictional. So what would be your go-to book if you were recommending it to somebody else? I think the book that I would... If someone said, oh, I need something really great to read, I'd say read A Man Called Ove. Fantastic book. But also, I love the Emile Zola novels. Mm. And, you know, my daughter is named after Emile Zola. Her name is Zola. So for me, they're these are sort of amazing... He's sort of the Dickens of France and wrote a huge number of books, which are incredible. And that's how I'd relax. I'd read in a Zola, I think. And most inspirational person, this could be somebody you know close to you or could be somebody you've never met. Well, look, I think that's really hard to choose one person. I do think that I am inspired by people, not what they did, but how they are. So I'm going to say Emma Jones, who is my amazing personal assistant has been for the last 15 years and who is I think one of the most incredible organized people who definitely you know helps me more than she ever knows and has never had an off day in the whole time I've I've never never missed a date that's amazing and she is always cheerful and even when I'm drowning under work she always makes me feel better about it and like I can do it so I'm gonna I'm gonna choose Emma and then most valued people skill. Most valued people skill. It's got to be empathy, hasn't it? Like, you know, just trying to figure out not how you think about it, but about how that other person thinks about it, mm. whatever the it is. So, Louise, at the start, you you said you don't really think of yourself as a entrepreneur, but, you know, you certainly share some of the qualities of an entrepreneur. In your mind, what do you think those might be? I think, for me... The most important has got to be curiosity. I think that for me sort of sums up what I enjoy most. And I see entrepreneurs doing just asking questions and being really, really curious about the world and about how things work and what they should do next. So huge thanks to Louise. What a superstar and an inspiration. What I love discovering about Louise is she's always learning, taking herself outside of her comfort zone and challenging the established thought processes. Be it shred guitar in America, learning SEO from eBay, or taking on the government at Tez, all of which she has done in such a humble manner. I'm lucky enough to know that Louise is phenomenal at building amazing teams, and it was great to hear her passion come out during our chat. If you'd like to listen to more inspiring stories, you can search Tenzing or The Ascent on any of your usual podcast platforms. We'd love you to rate and review this episode. And don't forget to subscribe. You'll be the first with access to future episodes. You can find out more on tenzing.pe, Twitter, LinkedIn, or on Instagram. I'd love talking to you. Bye for now.